Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Witsa, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. Thank you for having me in the first place. So my name is, is Witsa. I'm one of the three co-founders of uh, Citizen Lab, and I'm also the CEO. And what we are working on is the broader mission of making public decision-making more inclusive, more participatory, and more responsive. And we do that by providing a online community engagement platform to governments. We work with over 300 governments worldwide on, on online uh, community engagement. And um, the way that it practically works is actually that citizens, when they come to our platform, they can have a look at what the, the city is currently working on, because it's often in a, with a city or with a government. Um, and then they can have their say on the topics that they really care about. So they can share their ideas, they can discuss uh, other ideas, they can vote. But then on the other hand, they can also come up with proposals themselves and actually share their ideas for the city um, and communicate them to uh, or with their council. And so we're an organization of about uh, 40 people right now uh, trying to, to work and, and build a better digital democracy. What would you say is your personal why? That thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do all of that? Yeah, well, what gets me out of my bed in the morning is, is the idea that I can contribute to better democracy through my work. Um, our mission of helping shape stronger democracies for digital age by levering technology and, and getting more people involved in, in democracy is something um, that actually started out of also my own frustration that I had about five years ago as a citizen here and I'm calling from, from Brussels here. Um, I wanted to actually make my voice heard and I wanted to share my ideas, discuss them with other citizens here in my city. But the means to do so are pretty limited. You can, of course, attend the town hall meeting and go there on a Tuesday night at eight o'clock. But um, especially for youngsters and millennials, that's not the most attractive idea. You'll only see a handful of people doing so. And that's where I believe that technology can really make um, democracy and, and public decision-making more accessible and more inclusive to many more people. And um, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm really passionate about because after all the decisions being made they affect all our lives. They affect um, the streets that we live in, the neighborhoods we live in, the cities we live in. Um, so it's something that, yeah, that, that we should care about and that we should participate in. And um, that's what I'm, that's what, what really gives me, what gives me purpose. And one other thing that I want to add to that is being able to work in many different countries, being able to compare how governments work in the US versus Europe versus the global South is also something really fascinating and, and just being able to work with a team of people who, um, who believe in, in building a stronger democracy that's giving me uh, a lot of motivation. Are there any podcasts, books, video, print media, or other such things that you'd recommend to folks that are out there listening? Yeah, there are two particular books that I would, that I would recommend to listeners. The first one is a book called Against Elections. Um, it's a book written by um, David van Raybroek. He's a Belgian writer. And um, the book is actually about, um, it's an introduction of, of, of democracy, some history on democracy. But what the book does really well in, in less than 200 pages is 
it introduces some key concepts such as efficiency and legitimacy and why we need both to have a functioning democracy. And um, he makes the case to, to look at democracy as something beyond elections. He makes the case for a more participatory and a more uh, deliberative democracy. And the ideas in his books have also shaped our work at, at Citizen Lab. So that's, that's the first one and a good one to start with. And then from there, I think it would make sense for people interested to move on to um, open democracy, reinventing popular rule for the 21st century by um, the French American political scientist, Hélène Landmore. So that, that's a more recent book. I think that book appeared last year. And um, in the book, she actually describes her vision on participatory and deliberative democracy, how it could work with um, open mini publics that are really transparent and how it could uh, be complemented with digital platforms so that more people can be included in, in democracy. Um, so that is a book that gives you very concrete ideas of how the future democracy and open democracy could look like. Um, and there's, there's one other particular idea that I really like that she elaborates on in her book is the importance of political agenda setting. So something that we have experienced too at Citizen Lab is it's one thing to have a say on, um, you know, like the projects that your government is running, but it's still another thing to be able to influence the political agenda and to actually, yeah, to also lead the discussion. So in a way to have some meta participation, to have participation about participation, how shall we do that? So these are two books that I would absolutely recommend. And then um, maybe the last one in the newsletter that I really like is the newsletter of, of GovLab um, of the New York University. They have uh, each week, they have a newsletter with some, some really good articles and papers about yeah, the intersection of technology, data, and, uh, and democracy. Those, uh, those suggestions are, are quite apropos for the uh, conversation we're going to have today. And uh, admittedly, when you mentioned the, uh, the one that talks a bit about uh, agenda setting, I started to have a little flashbacks to grad school with, you know, the, the line and the median voter and, you know, you know trying to figure out uh, where the agenda setter would want to overlap with them on utility. Uh, it sounds like both those books would be really interesting. I'm going to have to check them out after we do this show here. So pivoting us over to our main conversation today, uh, something we're going to talk a bit about is this idea of a hybrid approach where governments might seek to find some harmony between the technical and the non-technical as they're looking at ways to engage with their communities. For folks that might not have heard about this relationship and this kind of thing that governments are doing, can you give us a high-level idea of what you might mean by like a hybrid approach? A hybrid approach for me is an approach in which we're combining more traditional instruments for community engagement and participatory democracy, combined with more innovative, more modern, more newer technologies, um, so concretely, something that we have especially also seen during, during the pandemic is that governments, they started scratching their heads because they couldn't host their beloved town hall meetings anymore because we couldn't meet in person anymore. Um, so that is more, that's a typical traditional instrument, town hall meetings, monthly meetings where people could sit in and where they could have uh, a couple of minutes to talk and to share their, their ideas or opinions and follow which public decisions have been made. Um, so that is a more traditional approach. Um, but then next to that traditional approach we've seen over the last couple of years, it has been a rise of digital platforms for community engagement. Um, and the way that they interact or work together is that town hall meetings were previously mainly used for 
face-to-face in-depth conversations to make decisions. Uh, digital platforms more to collect ideas, more open-ended. Uh, you could do voting, commenting, ideation. Um, so that is how it used to work. Now with COVID, something that we have seen is that hybrid has also been redefined in a way because we previously always used to, we always used to talk about um, online versus offline means of, of engagement and participation. I think it's more accurate now to start talking about synchronous versus asynchronous participation um, because both can actually be online or offline. What do I mean with that? Well, synchronous means face-to-face. We're talking real time, just as we're doing right now in this podcast, uh, we're having a conversation and it's the right way to, or the, yeah, the right way to, for, for deeper engagement, for in-depth discussions, to explore options, to have argumentation, deliberation, um, but it's only for a small group because it's time consuming. And then you have more asynchronous participation. Asynchronous basically means that you can participate wherever you are, whenever you want. Um, so that is something that is, that is, yeah, that is um, very well suited for, for online platforms. And that allows for, let's say, a thinner engagement. It, it's not going to be as in-depth as you would do with, during a town hall meeting or during like a community meeting but that allows to get way more people involved. Um, so just to say that I think that this hybrid approach of having both, whether you call it online versus offline or synchronous versus asynchronous participation, that such a blended approach is, is often actually optimal in, in the participatory process because it allows both for getting more people involved, but at the same time, still keep a good uh, in-depth process and conversation on uh, the decisions at stake. Yeah, as you're talking about that, the, the public meetings example i think is a is an astute one uh, i recall myself being in a meeting with a with a couple of folks from a park district and i remember something that they were thinking about out loud is how do we engage with folks that we typically can't communicate mm-hmm. with and what they explained to me is like one of their primary mechanisms was the public meeting and as it turns out if you hold a public meeting at like 3 p.m in the afternoon the, the, you know, you're going to get a biased group. It's going to be people that are already like highly interested and also not at work at that time. Right. So it, it sounds like, I think what I'm, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is like, this allows you to maybe reach out and engage those folks that can't make it necessarily to that synchronous, you know, in the yeah. middle of the day thing, but you can still get their input. Am, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, totally. And then we're talking mainly about young, younger people. So they are often left out from like community meetings and community engagement processes. And they are typically also the group that is increasingly dissatisfied with with democracy. So that's why I believe that technology really plays an important role to get also younger people uh, involved in in the community meetings and and, um, yeah, all the the participatory processes. And as you've mentioned, the the past year has been uh, somewhat difficult for governments as they've had to adjust to the pandemic, whether it's finding new ways to communicate, as we've been talking about, uh, whether it's uh, trying to solicit input on things that they have going on that they're deliberating on. They've had to like figure out new practices. So we talked about the public meetings example, but um, are, are there other practices that you've seen that out there that you've thought have been effective? Yeah, well, something that, that, um, that I started doing is hosting online meetings. And I think we've seen some really great examples of that. Uh, also at Lab, we started developing like a tool for hosting participatory community meetings online. Um, so I believe that that is something that will 
stick around even after COVID. They were not going back only to town hall meeting and, and like the in-person physical meetings, but they will also host online meetings that people can tune in just from their couch at night uh, and, and follow the meeting. So that's, uh, I think, a practice that is, that, is, that, is, that is promising that we can blend like on the one hand, um, the participation via the digital platforms, get more people involved, get more transparency, but then on the other hand, can use new tools, new workshop tools, video technology to start experimenting with doing deliberation at a larger scale, not only having to rely on like physical meetings, but getting more people involved by hosting these meetings also online and not only uh, at a town hall. A practice that sticks out to me as I was like looking through this topic or you know, preparing for this conversation is participatory budgeting, where some amount of the funding that a government is is allocating is devoted to initiatives that the community might come up with and vote on. I find this particularly interesting because often a budget is one of the clearest ways that a government can communicate what its values are. So in this case, you could say that we're getting a similar peek into what those values are for the community at large. For folks who might not be familiar with participatory budgeting, what is that all about and like how, how does that work? Participatory budgeting, it's all about the allocation of budgets through the community. Um, as you said, I mean, it's budget is indeed one of the best ways to actually communicate about your values and your priorities. So what's special about participatory budgeting is that you ask the public or your residents to actually be in the shoes of the mayor and the policymakers and see the trade-offs because I mean, our resources are unfortunately not endless. So we'll have to make choices. And um, that's the whole idea with, with participatory budgeting to actually be faced with these trade-offs and um, yeah, making clear priorities. So we see there are actually two sorts of participatory budgeting. On the one hand, we have uh, participatory budgets about the overall budget, about policy priorities. So in that case, you could have a say on how, what's the percentage that should go to greener mobility, to better infrastructure, to more healthcare. Um, so that's one sort of uh, participatory budgeting. It's often in a more advisory role. It's more as a way to get our feedback on the budgets being set by, by, by the mayor or the council. But then the more popular way of doing participatory budgeting is to actually have the community allocate funds to community projects. So that is something that we see all over the world in the United States, but also in Europe, uh, more and more happening. For instance, in, in Scotland, um, they have it actually in, in their law, in their legislation that all municipalities, local governments, they should allocate at least 1% of their total budget together with uh, the public and the residents. But we also see in, in the United States more and more uh, participatory budgets are, are happening. Just to give an idea of how this works concretely. So we work, for instance, with um, the city of Ghent in Belgium, and they have a budget of 6 million euros that they allocate together with the community. And this often happens in a couple of, in a couple of steps. So step one is generating ideas for your neighborhood. So the citizens, the residents, they're invited to submit their ideas and discuss them with each other. Then from the initial ideas, there's a selection. And in the second phase, you're going to develop these into, into projects. Once these projects are developed, you go to third phase and you go to the ballot box to actually allocate funds and to make choices on, all right, which project do we, do we want to see funded in our neighborhood? And that's typically how the process behind the participatory budget looks like. Something I imagine that is challenging with that process is communication mediums. 
as you mentioned, like that, that, that process seems very heavy with interaction. You know, you have to get, gather ideas from the community. You're figuring out, you know, how weighted they are in popularity. Uh, how, how do how do those governments kind of go about trying to get that interaction in a way that is accessible to the entire population, not just, you know, those who have access to like a particular type of device or something? Two, two points that I want to make there. So the first one is it's always a good thing to go hyper-local. How do you want to see your neighborhood change? What would you like to see improving your neighborhood rather than making it too high level for the entire city or the entire, you know, like larger area? So that's that's one thing, making it hyper-local and targeting in the communications also the residents for their respective neighborhoods so that everything becomes very tangible for them. And then secondly, to, to answer your question, like which channels of communication, of course, there are the, the, all the online channels with, you know, like social media and, and, and newsletters and, and whatever um, online channels. But then something that we've seen um, in order to also include people who don't have digital access is they would have voting stations in the city, in the neighborhood during one week, for instance, so that people who don't have access to internet can then still um, yeah, make their voice heard and cast their vote uh, on, on the specific projects. Some, something that I think might be a challenge if you're you know, a member of the community is you, if you're not, if you haven't, this isn't the first time you've done the participatory budgeting process, you might be wondering whether or not an initiative you did in the last cycle is, was effective and whether or not you want to carry that idea forward, whether continuing it or doing another idea similar to that. One thing that can be challenging is trying to understand that idea of, was this effective? Was this idea good? Did it do the thing that we were hoping that it would do? Which may, maybe government is then in, in a unique position to try to do that, I guess, to maybe use the academic term, like cost-benefit analysis kind of kind of thing. Have you seen uh, any governments like doing anything that's like particularly effective at trying to facilitate that sharing of information? I think indeed it starts from in the first place sharing the information and going beyond like, hey, this is what we're gonna do. And so that you're so we we have indeed seen quite some governments um, constantly keep on giving updates about what has happened with an actual project or idea and, and to be able to follow the implementation afterwards. So that is indeed like a, a key thing in, in community engagement um, that we always close the feedback loop. It doesn't end, hey, that's been the decision, but that there are constant updates about what is what has happened and really there you go from an initial idea to the project being realized or being implemented in in real life um, so that is that is something that is absolutely key to have transparency on the actual implementation also in order to hold our policymakers accountable because you could say hey yeah we're going to do this and that but after all are we effectively going to implement all of this so that's why um, open communication about the, the outcomes is so important. A considerable amount of what we talked about involves getting information about what folks in the community think about these topics, policies, ideas. It's not uncommon for folk, for elected officials to lean on polling information in order to help give them an idea of where the public is at on an issue. What makes for an effective poll in the kind of environment we've been talking about and how can government officials avoid being uh, thrown off by biased results? That's a good question. And I think we should first look at polls in, the, in themselves um, because I'm quite skeptical actually about polls as, as a mean for community engagement, especially if you look at them as, um, you know, like here's a poll, these are the two choices, yes or no, binary choice. And now we want to hear what your preference is. 
A typical example is obviously Brexit, where they asked a question, but I didn't expect to get these answers. And I think that's what typically happens with, with a poll. If you don't have deliberation or discussion preceding the actual voting. So what I think to make polling effective, what should happen are, are two things. The first thing is there should always be a public debate preceding the actual vote. So you should always have the possibility to actually say, hey, that's option A, that's option B, that's option C. And these are the pros and cons. Having that debate is at least as important as the actual voting part, because that debate is going to shape the opinions and the preferences of your community. And that's what, what also participatory democracy and community engagement is about. It's not only about us expressing our individual opinions, it's the transformative effect of being able to listen to others, to share empathy with the perspectives of others. And that's why uh, the discussion is so important. So that is, that is one, that there should be discussion preceding the actual voting. And then two, um, I'm more a fan of what I call um, a preferendum instead of a referendum, giving multiple options, not just a binary choice, but giving more options um, so that it's not too restricted to, to yes or no. Um, to just give an example there, a couple of projects that we've done are, for instance, on, on, on the redesign of a public square in the city. And you could phrase it as, hey, do you agree with this design or with this plan, yes or no? Another way is to say, hey, here are a couple of options, and now we're going to deliberate. We're going to look at the pros and cons, and then we want you to vote on what your preferred option is, which I think is a way better um, participatory design. And to, to answer the last part of your uh, question, Ryan, on how to avoid uh, biased results, I think it's important to always have really clear rules for engagement and that you communicate them upfront. So if it, is a, if it is a binding poll, if it would be a referendum, then you need to be very clear upfront about, for instance, a minimum show up rate, minimum number of participants, or you could even say, we need to have at least so many participants per age group. So that's something uh, that we've also seen a project that we've done in, in Belgium with a city was about, shall we make the, the city center uh, car free every first Sunday of the month? And they said, all right, we're only going to accept the result if we have at least 20% of our population uh, showing up and voting within this, this digital referendum. Um, so which I, I thought was, was really good because they made it clear upfront when they would accept the result of, of uh, this poll. If it wouldn't be a, a binding poll, then I think it's also important for the government to look at the data, see how preferences might differ between different age groups, how youngsters might have different opinions versus older people or the different neighborhoods. Um, so these are just a couple of things I think that we have to keep in mind when uh, designing for polls. That, that last example is pretty interesting. I uh, wasn't aware that there were governments that were setting floors for participation in order to say whether or not the there's strength behind the referendum to, to accept it. Because, uh, you know, you, you've heard the, there's kind of the, the gradient of how participation works where it's like, you know, either there's no requirement, there's a requirement, and there's like the two extremes that kind of forced participation in a poll. But this seems like it's somewhere in the middle where it's like, well, you know, it's voluntary participation, but we're really only going to see this as a valid result if enough folks participate. Exactly. That's, that's the idea indeed. But we've also seen examples of some cities setting, setting some other rules, for instance, hey, we're going to share the decision-making power. So the council has 50% of the votes and the community has the other 50% of the votes. 
just to say that I think, I mean, there's, there's really a strength in having rules and setting them uh, and communicating them clearly up front. Another thing in what you said that stuck out to me a bit is uh, you talked a little about the difference between like a referendum and I think you used the term preferendum where there's kind of multiple choices. And then you also had mentioned like the Brexit example. And uh, that to me made the preferendum sound uh, especially clever because I, I recall reading something about how Brexit turned out in that it sort of turned into a bit of a plebiscite on like, do I like what the government's currently doing as opposed to being about the question that the government was trying to answer. So then like folks who, whether they had an opinion or not about the actual choice, wanted to still express the frustration they had. And one one side of that vote kind of became the vehicle for that. It sounds like maybe the preferendum might kind of help get through, cut through some of that to get through, like, like we're actually trying to make a choice about this, like, scenario. And, and do, you, do you think that's the case? I think that's a really good point. We have, in Belgium, we have um, a politician who said, with referendum, you will always get answers on a question that you have never asked. And I think that's exactly the case with Brexit. People, as you said, like out of frustration, they, they voted no. But actually, we don't know why they voted no. So instead, if they would have organized more as a preferendum, if they would have offered a couple of scenarios, and if, would, if they would have first have had a public discussion on these scenarios, potentially, for instance, with the Citizens' Assembly, and then they would formulate an advice, and then they, they, they would actually organize the voting, I think that would be a way better design um, than just having, like, as you said, uh, all right, do you, do you support the decision that we are about to make here? Um, which doesn't leave a lot of choice, and we do, which doesn't explain why you make up your mind that way and why you have such a, such a preference. To give uh, another example on our end, so something that we have, uh, a cool project that we have done in, in, in Greenland of all places, the capital of Greenland, was um, in light of Black Lives Matter, they had a public debate about the decolonization of the public space. And they had a statue in the middle of the city of, yeah, I think it was 16th century Danish missionary who came in for the first time. And then the question is, all right, shall we remove that, that statue out of the public space or shall we keep it? If we remove it, do we bring it to a museum or do we, what do we do with like, where do we locate it? And if we keep it, shall we make it like a more of an art piece? Shall we keep, keep it in, in its current uh, state? Um, so they offered a couple of scenarios on which then citizens would say, hey, yeah, here are the pros, here are the cons. And then one week later, they would have the, the possibility, the citizens to vote, this is my preferred scenario, my preferred option. And I think something similar for, for the Brexit would have been way better, like how can our future look like uh, with regards to the European Union? What are the different options here? And um, start way more from the actual content and what, that, what it all implies with of course, also way more, yeah, factual information. That that's another uh, thing, of course. Um, but I think that could have been a, a better design than simply going for, yeah, a simple poll and a simple referendum. In what we've talked about, there's also this idea that there are kind of quantitative and qualitative natures to the sort of feedback a government might be after. I imagine it can be quite difficult to make proper use of both as you're going through a decision-making process, you know, how to like kind of mesh them together and come up with those proposals, possibly, as we were talking about. Uh, how can governments work to like level up their ability to navigate that sort of research challenge? First, on the qualitative versus quantitative aspect, I think it's important to gather that qualitative 
data or input to actually understand why people have expressed their opinions in a certain way. Because if you don't have that why, you can't make up why we should make a certain decision. At least in, in my ideal model, what we should try to do is we should work more towards making our representative democracy more representative by getting more people involved and having actually in a more advisory role, having our input being communicated to um, our decision makers who are then our political leaders are going to make the decision in the end, um, as opposed to a direct democracy where we're directly voting through a poll as we just discussed. Um, I think that's for me at least way more dystopian um, than having that public debate and sharing these inputs. And then I think we will always end up with more qualitative data. But now getting back to your question, how governments can navigate, like bring qualitative and quantitative together. I think that often it's, it's one and the same, especially in a, in a digital context, because we use today um, such technologies that in the data analysis and the data processing that use text analytics and that all the semantics of the content and of the ideas that are being shared, that they're made um, quantitative in a way. We're looking at the input coming from the community um, in a more mathematical way. We're looking at like how similar are certain inputs, we're clustering them together. Um, and that way, qualitative data is becoming more quanti quantitative uh, data. And you get even, starting from open-ended questions, you, you get concrete uh, results on, hey, out of this consultation, we've concluded that these are the 10 different uh, priorities. On your organization's blog, there was a bit of advice that stuck out to me. It suggests that your work should be data-driven and your data should be experience-driven. Can you elabor elaborate a bit on that and how that point might kind of fit into the theme of the conversation we've been having so far? As we, as we discussed earlier, um, community engagement, well, it's not only, the goal of community engagement is not only to increase trust and legitimacy in, in public decisions being made, um, so that's what you could say is giving people a say, but it's also about having people um, or giving people influence on the decisions being made. And that's why your work, I mean, in this case, as a policymaker should be data-driven. You should actually have an understanding of what is the community saying. And when we say your data should be experience-driven, then we're referring to the fact that people um, in the city, our residents, our citizens who are daily making use of our infrastructure, of uh, our public space, that they are the heart of our city. They have the best understanding of what's wrong, what could be better. Um, so that's the idea that you actually collect input and data from people being daily in, out in our cities and that you use that data to better inform your decision making. So that actually what's being, what's being lived, what's being experienced is influencing the decisions being made. Um, a couple of points that I wanted to also make with regards to data-driven decision-making is that one thing is that something that we've seen is that data literacy within government is sometimes still pretty, uh, pretty low or lacking and is going to be increasingly important. Uh, once you have hundreds or thousands of participants and inputs, having the ability to understand what's being said is really important because technology that can assist you with the analysis and exploring all uh, the opinions and what's being said, but it's not going to draw the conclusions for you. So that's still the role of the public servants, the public officials, and the policymakers. 
So that's one point that is, is definitely going to be increasingly important in, in uh, the coming years, data literacy. Um, the second point, I think we've talked about this before, is next to next to, to collecting the input, I think government is getting better and better at collecting input and doing community engagement. But the next step will be, how do we communicate back these decisions? How do we track what has happened after the decision? And also, how can we give feedback in such a way that it's, that it's more personalized? That you actually know as a resident, hey, this is what I've shared, and that's how it has influenced these decisions. So that's something that we're currently exploring also at Citizen Lab to actually connect the input with the actual decision and showing how your input has shaped or has not shaped a, a, a public decision. So they have full transparency on that. And then a, a last thing that is important with regards to, to data-driven policymaking is that we should have um, not only transparency about the decision being made itself, that's, that's an obvious one, but we should also have more transparency about the data that is being used, the analysis that is being used and how, um, how that data has informed the decision. So what I'm thinking of concretely, once you do a consultation and you've, you've gathered um, hundreds or thousands of input, well, the visualization of that data, of what's being said and, and the new techniques, the text analytics techniques that we're using, I think that that should always be public so that the public has the same means and the same information symmetry um, in order to evaluate actually how their public officials have worked with that data and have come up with a certain decision. On a prior episode of this podcast, there was a conversation about whether or not there would be this sort of rubber band effect as some governments might seek to kind of return to the way things were as the COVID restrictions kind of go away as ideally as the situation improves. Should we expect to see governments undoing some of the changes that they've made in the face of the pandemic? Or do you think a lot of what's been done is going to end up proving to be sticky, you know, where they'll end up continuing the practice? I think most of the digital tools that we started adopting, because I think that's what it's about in the end, we started adopting way more digital tools. And yeah, the government has been digitizing so rapidly. Well, I think that these tools, they will, they will stick around. And not only because of COVID, COVID has been a trigger, but the, the real acceleration, I think, is in more than, than only COVID. First one is when we look at the workforce of governments, more and more younger people are working within government or are envisioning a career within the public sector. I think that's um, one important aspect that the people, public servants are younger, are more tech savvy. Um, and then next to that, another thing is that now, of course, we have started using these digital tools. We've seen the clear benefits. We might also have seen the downsides, for instance, with regards to digital access that we still need to provide these alternatives. Um, but I do expect actually that governments will keep on um, following this, this digital road and um, will still be live streaming their town hall meetings. We'll be using digital platforms to engage our community. Uh, hopefully it's only going to increase in, in, in the years to come. As we get to the tail end of this conversation, something we often do on this podcast is leave some space at the end for the guests to give us an idea of what they'd like us to leave this conversation thinking about. So for this conversation we've had today, uh, what would you say those concluding thoughts should be? I would advise all the listeners to um, especially make use of all the great tools that are already out there to get engaged. It's, it's going back to, to a broader message that I think that to, to, for, us all, for us as citizens, it's our responsibility to also participate in democracy. The democracy is a, something that we shape all together. 
And it has never been so easy to actually engage. You don't have to get out of your couch or armchair. You can go online and instead of having to go like from door to door and collect signatures, how we used to do it maybe five or 10 years ago, you can now launch your proposal online and get your signatures or votes online. Uh, you can attend a town hall meeting. You don't even have to drive there. Um, so it has never been this easy to engage. So my message would be make use of that, make use of that opportunity and um, yeah, leverage these tools to engage and to be part of your local democracy. Again, thank you so much for joining us here on the program today. I have no doubt folks are going to have a bit that they can take away and learn from this conversation we've had about democracy. Thank you, Ryan. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.